0: What does it mean to tempt God? The context with which we are likely most familiar is in Satan's temptation of Jesus. Satan suggests to Jesus that he cast himself from the pinnacle of the temple since God in Psalm 91 promises angels will come to the rescue of his people. Jesus responds, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Tempting God in this context means we expect him to miraculously intervene in order to save us from potential consequences. Expecting miraculous intervention is akin to the Pharisees and scribes and multitudes demanding signs from Jesus. In John chapter 6, verse 30, the multitudes say to Jesus, What sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Show us a sign like the man in the wilderness and we will believe is not that far from. Send angels to rescue me. Prove to me the promises of your word, O God. Jordan Peterson observed, To expect God to rescue Jesus makes a mockery of independence and courage and destiny and free will and responsibility. Furthermore, God is in no wise a safety net for the blind. He's not someone to be commanded to perform magic tricks or forced into self-revelation, not even by his own son. A second example of tempting God happens in Exodus 17 too. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? The children of Israel had left Egypt only weeks before, and as one can imagine, moving millions of people through an arid landscape was a bit of a logistical challenge, especially when it came to food and water. Earlier in chapter 15, verses 22 through 24, the congregation spent three days looking for water. They eventually found some that was unsuitable to drink, but God miraculously cleansed it. They ended up in a place with lots of water, but not long after that, they needed food. So, God provided manna and quail to sustain them. So, when they complained about no water in chapter 17, they were tempting God in a somewhat similar way. They were demanding a miracle, but they were also revealing doubting hearts. God had delivered them from the preeminent power of the day in an amazing way. He had proven himself faithful by providing food and water. In spite of these mercies, Israel doubted him and thereby put God in a position to be angry with them. But Psalm 91 promises God will intervene to preserve and save us from all sorts of trials and troubles. Should we not have faith in the promises of Scripture? In Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow before the great idol erected by Nebuchadnezzar, even under threat of being burned alive. They responded, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. I cannot help but wonder if these three faithful men thought of Isaiah 43 too. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you and through the rivers they shall not overflow you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. Regardless of whether or not they thought of Isaiah 43, 2, these men were supremely confident that God was able to deliver them from the fiery furnace. They knew divine intervention was possible. But if not, they continue in chapter 3, verse 18, Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. In spite of the fact that God was able to save them from the fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego recognized it was possible he would choose not to do so. Their greater concern was holding on to their integrity at all costs. God commanded, You shall have no other gods before me, and... They refused to compromise. They refused to compromise because there were no other options and they were under no illusions how their choice might turn out. Though they were confident in God's power to deliver them from the fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego held to their integrity and accepted the possibility that they might very well die for their faith in the furnace. But life rarely places us in such a position. Generally, there are multiple good options available, even in a high-stakes situation. After three years in Damascus, Arabia, and then Damascus again, Paul returned to Jerusalem. At first, the church balked at Paul's conversion until Barnabas convinced the brethren to receive him. Once received into their fellowship, Paul demonstrated the genuineness of his conversion, preaching Christ crucified in Jerusalem but his presence quickly soured on the disbelieving Jews, so much so that they were ready to kill him. As the story goes, the church got wind of their plans and arranged to smuggle Paul out of the city at night. Was it wrong for Paul to run for persecution? Was he showing weak faith by not manning up and facing down the multitude? Please bear in mind, Multiple times in his ministry, Jesus himself escaped from imminent physical danger. In the case of Paul, though, there were other Jewish Christians in Jerusalem who could handle preaching Jesus to the unbelievers. Paul was not abandoning the preaching of the gospel. He was leaving it to men who were better suited to carry out this work. And according to Acts twenty-two eighteen 18-21, Jesus appeared to Paul in a vision and commanded him to leave Jerusalem and take the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul was not in a position where he was left with no other choice, no other option. Others could shoulder the burden of preaching the gospel and Jesus had another mission for him in mind. Had Paul ignored Jesus and the other possibilities set before him by stubbornly remaining in Jerusalem, Paul would not have been acting in faith. He would have been tempting God. But this was not always the case in Paul's life. When he was on his final journey to Jerusalem, he was told how it would end. Paul told the Ephesian elders, and see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying, that chains and tribulations await me. Acts 20, verses 22 and 23. When he visited the house of Philip in Caesarea one chapter later, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Why was Paul intent on going to Jerusalem regardless of the cost to himself? Well, remember, Paul and his companions were transporting a gift from the Gentile churches of Galatia, Achaia, and Macedonia. They were transporting this gift to the poor saints in Judea. When Peter, James, and John acknowledged Paul was intended by God to take the gospel to the Gentiles in Galatians 2, they urged him to remember the poor among his countrymen, which Paul says he was very eager to do. Putting these passages together, I believe Paul was passionate about caring for the poor among his fellow Jews and wanted, with every fiber of his being, to see this promise fulfilled. Now, Paul was not above changing his mind if he thought the circumstances warranted such a change. But in the case of this gift, Paul seemed to see no other way. He made a commitment, it was a righteous cause, and he wanted to see it through to whatever end the Lord had in mind. He understood the risks. When the brethren in Caesarea attempted to dissuade him, Paul responds, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Acts 21.13 Paul did not expect God to rescue him from the consequences of his decision. He understood the risks, but judged the fulfillment of his promise to be of greater value. But rarely in life are decisions reduced to one or two options. Generally speaking, even in high-stakes situations, there are several alternatives laid before us and good reasons to consider choosing those paths. But sometimes there is no other path, no other alternative. When that is the case, we should proceed forward with the understanding that God is under no obligation to either mitigate the consequences for our choices or miraculously intervene. Yes, he is able to deliver us from evil, but if he chooses not to do so, we should assume the risks which come with walking by faith and doing what we know to be right in all good conscience. One last warning we can take from Jesus' temptation is to note how easily Scripture can be manipulated to serve the desired end. Satan quoted from Psalm 91, but it was a quote without context and a quote in isolation. In quoting, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Jesus shows us how imperative it is to be circumspect in our interpretation of Scripture. How many times have well-meaning, sincere believers in God been guided by misunderstanding or misapplying a single Scripture interpreted in isolation? Such examples should make us wary of expecting divine intervention on the testimony of a single witness. Don't take a single passage interpreted in isolation and consequently expect the Lord to deliver you from your present circumstances. Don't expect the Lord to act in ways commensurate with your understanding, but contrary to the thrust of Scripture. If we single-mindedly pursue a course of action, ignore other options, and choose to hold out for a miracle, we may end up drowning in disappointment. Thanks for listening to the Gospel Saves podcast. If you found this program useful, please visit thegospelsaves.me to find blogs, videos, and Bible studies. If you enjoyed the music on this podcast, please visit acapelledridge.com. You can also find Acapelledridge on Apple Music, Google Play, Spotify, YouTube, and Facebook. May God bless you as you seek to know His perfect will.